Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Genesis 44. Genesis 44, we're going to cover chapters 44 and 45 in the sermon this morning. Um, The first two-thirds of the sermon will be chapter 44, and then the final third, final point, will be chapter 45. This is part two of a two-part sermon that I began two Sundays ago. We looked at chapter 43. Uh, 42 to 45 is is sort of the, the, there's a maybe a year, year and a half potentially that passes in those four chapters, but it's kind of the same story. It's the reconciling of Joseph and his brothers. Now, as we get into chapter 44, they don't know yet that, that this is Joseph, their brother, although they've been you know, dialoguing him for some time now. But if you remember back in 43, they had gone home, okay? They had taken all the food that they had gotten from Egypt, uh, but they are also told, we're not going to believe that you're spies, and Simeon, your brother's got to remain. And if you bring Benjamin back, then I'll believe you. <laughs> And so Joseph gives the first of his tests. He sits them down for a meal. He piles the food on Benjamin's plate and kind of, so what are are y'all going to do about that? (laughs) You know, favoritism once again being shown to a brother, how the other brother is going to respond. And now in chapter 44, Joseph sort of ups the ante to that particular test. Not only, it's not going to be about a lot of food, it's going to be, do you want your freedom or do you want your brother? Uh, that's the predicament shown to them. And Joseph is testing them. Are these men changed? Or are they the same scoundrels that they were all those years ago when they sold me into slavery? But the final result, of course, is a reconciling of Joseph and his brothers. Now, this will continue on even into chapter 50, but the beginnings of this reconciliation are happening here. And I think it's very informative for us not only in teaching us the importance of reconciling the broken relationships in our life, it's going to be difficult, but there's one ingredient that it must always include, and that is repentance. It can't happen unless the two sides are willing to forgive and the, and the offender is willing to repent and express sorrow over it. With those things in mind, let me read. I'm going to read chapter 44, and sort of along the way in the sermon, I'll mention some, some of the verses from chapter 45. This is God's word. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and from this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants." He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? 
Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If your youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I, will never see, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would teach us now from your word, Lord, that you would give us forgiving hearts, desirous of reconciliation in our broken relationships, and Lord, we thank you for the wonderful grace that you give unto us every single day. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you have seen the performance, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I don't recommend that you see it, uh, but it is interesting, uh, to say the least. I don't recommend it for several reasons. One, because of its inaccuracies. Uh, if you know, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers in that performance, he's wearing the coat of many colors. That, of course, not accurate. And the role of Pharaoh, of course, is played by Elvis Presley. Uh, that is inaccurate. Uh, I don't think Elvis was around then, but that certainly is not what happened. But it's not just the inaccuracies that we ought to have a problem with. It's the bad theology, in addition, that it also teaches, namely this. When Joseph is in prison and sort of languishing unjustly in this prison that he's been thrown into, the narrator speaks to Joseph and says these words, don't worry, I've read the rest of the book and you come out on top. Now, of course, that's true, but that's not how life works. Wouldn't you like some narrator comforting you? Don't worry, Andy, the trial that you're going through right now. You come out on top or everything turns out okay in the end. Now, ultimately, we know that's true. 
If we are in Christ, we are inheritors, we are conquerors in him. But that's not what the narrator is speaking of. He's speaking about a temporal, everything's going to turn out in the end. God doesn't tell us such things. Why doesn't he tell us such things? In order to increase our faith and trust, excuse me, to increase our faith and trust in him. And what he's teaching Joseph is this, all that I'm doing through you is not just for your sake, it's for the sake of your brothers, it's for the sake of your family and my people as a whole, which he'll mention again in chapter 50. God is using what seemed to be in so many instances throughout Joseph's life to this point, a disorganized, a tragic plan to accomplish his perfect and providential purposes for Joseph and his brothers. And it's only on the back side of all this that, as we see at the end of our passage, Joseph is able to look back at these things and, guys, don't you see how God was in control of all of this all the time? His purposes are always good, even if that includes really painful things in our life. So three things I want us to see from this passage. The first is a piercing question. It's not actually a question that's asked explicitly in the text. It's a question that's implied in the text. And I'll come to that in just a second. The brothers, that day before they get up to travel home, they had been eating and drinking and having a great time with Joseph, although they don't know it's Joseph, and with one another. Their guard is down. They probably assume everything is fine at this point. So they get up the following morning, and unbeknownst to them, the money has once again been put back in their grain sack, as well as a cup. Now, this is, this is more than just a drinking cup. This was a cup specially made for Joseph, and it was probably more of like, like a punch bowl-sized thing. I always have in my mind the Stanley Cup, if you're a hockey fan out there. It, it probably wasn't that, but it was something a little more elaborate than just a silver drinking cup. And the reason we think that is because of what Joseph says. I, I, I use this for divination. It's actually not clear if he actually does use it for divination But the point was, there was an Egyptian belief that the way you poured water into this cup and the way it sort of sloshed around somehow was to tell you what was coming soon in your life. Okay, I guess it's like a a tarot card reader or something of that day. And so this is a tremendously valuable cup. And it has been placed into the grain sack of Benjamin. So they get a little ways out of the city, and the steward and likely some other army men of some kind come tracking these brothers down. You know, why have you repaid evil for good? And the brothers don't know what to say. Well, you, what are you talking about? You know, why did you steal this cup? They say, well, look, you, you can search our grain set. We haven't taken anything, and the one who did take it, they will surely die, and the rest of us will be your servants. Now, the steward dials that back a little bit, doesn't he? He's gracious in saying, well, no, just whoever has the cup will be our servant, and the rest of you are innocent. And they all lower their grain sack, and the cup is found in Benjamin's. And it says that all the brothers tear their clothes. Now, there are some many correlations between the story of Joseph and the story of Benjamin, and I'm going to try to point several of those out along the way. When they are told that Joseph has died, only Jacob tears his clothes. When they are told now that this horrible thing's about to happen to Benjamin, everybody tears their clothes. It's an early indication that indeed these brothers have changed. They're different men. They're already responding 
differently than before. So what are they going to do? Are they going to abandon Benjamin? No, they're not. They tear their clothes in mourning, and they all go back with Benjamin to see Joseph again. The brothers return, and they bow down to Joseph once again, and they are terrified. And Joseph asks a question of them. In fact, it's the eighth time this question has been asked in the book of Genesis. What is this that you have done? Or what is the deed that you have done? It's, it, it's a slight variations in the eight asking, but it's the same idea. What is this that you have done? In the previous seven times, this question has been answered incorrectly. And finally, the eighth time, it's answered correctly. God asks Adam and Eve, what is this that you have done? God asks Cain when he kills Abel, what is this that you have done? Pharaoh asks Abraham when he lies about who Sarah is, what is this that you have done? The two Abimelechs ask uh, Abraham and then Isaac when they lie about their wives, what is this that you have done? Jacob asks Laban when he gets Leah and not Rachel, what is this that you have done? And each time the answer is some excuse. Well, what my fault is their fault. Each time it's asked, there's a blame shift. There's a, well, you don't understand what I was going through at the time. This is the reason I did all these bad and terrible things. But finally, the eighth time, and I do think there may be some significance to eight here that I don't have time to go into, but what does Judah say? What do you want us to say? We've got nothing to say. We're guilty. Not guilty of the cup and not guilty of the money, but guilty in the same way that they recognize their guilt back in chapter 42. We are guilty of what we did to Joseph, and our sin is finding us out. We are guilty and wrong. There's no excuses. There's no, let me tell you about what was going on in my life when I made that decision. We were wrong, and we know it. Will you have mercy on us? Which indeed is exactly what we are to do when our sin has been found out. We, I was wrong. I don't know how all this happened but we are wrong. Could you have mercy on us? I've asked this question before in our study of Genesis, but I think it's appropriate to ask again. When is the last time you responded like that to your sinfulness? I was wrong. Honey, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I spoke that way to you. I have no excuses. It doesn't matter that I'd had a bad day and I blew up on you. I was wrong, and I am sorry. Will you forgive me? I want to make this right. I, I, want to, I want to have the hard conversation with a person that I spoke incorrectly to. And I, I, I want to do what's right to reconcile. I want to do what's right to bring this back together again. And Judah knows this. There's nothing he can say. God has uncovered their former sins, and that is why they are guilty. We are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whom the cup has been found. And Joseph says, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. As for the rest of you, go in peace to your father. The trap is set. It's the piercing question that's not asked, it's implied. What are you going to do now that another favorite son, you could throw him out just like you threw me out and everything would be fine. Are you going to do the same thing? Are you going to do the same thing? How do you feel about Benjamin? Do you feel the same way about him that you do or that you did me? What are you going to do now? 
Last time, it was 20 pieces of silver that you gained. Now, the price tag is much higher. It's your freedom. You could give Benjamin over to the Egyptians, and you could go home with no ramifications at all. What are you going to do? Well, they're changed men. These are not the same guys from 22 years ago. No, they go back with Joseph. Oh, excuse me. They go back with Benjamin, and they're standing right there with him. The piercing question was meant by Joseph to bring confession and repentance, and that's exactly what it does. It achieves its desired result. You know, God really does love us, and one of the ways that He loves us is by exposing our sins to us. And that's hard, and it is not pleasant, but one of the things He means to do for us in our Christian life is to transform us, is to change us, and to to bring us out of the darkness and in once again, to the light, which is what he's doing for Joseph's brothers here. But he's doing it through exposing their sin, making them see their need for mercy, and sort of falling down and pleading for it. Do you see that in your own life? Has God changed you? Are you the same way that you were when you were 25, or 15, or 8? I trust that the Lord has been changing you, maturing you, developing you, making your faith grow deeper and deeper. And one of the unpleasant ways He does this is by exposing to you your sin. And I don't mean just some mistakes. I don't mean just some errors in judgment. Has He ever shown you, Andy, this is a character flaw that you have, and you need to repent of this and you need to live unto righteousness. You need to plead for my mercy and grace on you here so that you'd live in a manner that's worthy of your calling as a Christian. It's a hard step because it's about the heart and it's about the, the death of your pride. But he does mean to change us. And, but don't you see how he does this? Because he's doing this for the brothers here in this passage. Secondly, we see a profound plea. Joseph now intercedes for his brother Benjamin here at the end of chapter 44. Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Judah is now stepping forward and speaking on behalf of Benjamin. Joseph, respectfully, let me say to you that the reason Benjamin's here in the first place is because of you is essentially what he says. I'm sure he said it very respectfully, but that's, you you know, he's only here because you made us bring him. And all this has happened, right, because of your directive, Mr. Joseph, although he does not know him as Joseph yet. And Joseph listens to what Judah is saying here, and he learns information that he would not have known prior. He learns that 22-some years ago, that Jacob, his father, was told that he was torn into pieces by animals and that the consciousness of the, the consciences of Judah and his brothers are still suffering. Judah acknowledges the favoritism shown to Benjamin, but he doesn't speak of it negatively. He just speaks of it as a matter of fact. And they cannot, cannot bear to think what would happen to their father if Benjamin doesn't come back. Judah is pleading on behalf of other people. And Joseph is able to see that they love Benjamin. They care for him. They want 
him to be okay. They are worried for his well-being. And so Joseph, Judah, excuse me, offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. He's substituting, isn't he? No, please. I, I can't bear to think what would happen to my father if Benjamin doesn't go back. I'll stay and be your servant forever. Please let Benjamin return. This is a tremendous transformation. This is not the same guys. They, he's expressing a love for his brother. He's expressing a love for his father. Please, Joseph, please accept this substitution. It's very ironic if you think about it, because who was the one that suggested they sell Joseph into slavery back in chapter 37? Well, it was Judah. And now he's offering himself as a slave in order to protect and save Benjamin. Again, a tremendous transformation. But I don't think it's just about Judah here. I think Judah is functioning sort of like Peter functions in the New Testament. He's the spokesman for the group. You know, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, I think he's expressing what the disciples believe, not just his own personal belief, although that was his own personal belief. Judah is su suggesting here, this is what we all think. This is, what, this is the way we all feel about Benjamin and about our father Jacob. Just see how far Judah has come. He's the one that comes up with selling Joseph. He's the one that has the sexual immorality with Tamar. He's the one who for years and years has just been this harsh man, and look what he is doing now. Look at how God has used Joseph to transform him by his grace. We must never underestimate the power of God's grace in people's lives. Just as God was with Joseph and his brothers across seemingly 20 years of silence, he was working in their hearts. You want the gospel to transform you? You want the gospel to transform your spouse? You want the gospel to transform your kids and the people that you love? Here is the best way to, find that, to, to see that happen. Pray for them. Plead with God to do that in their life. Don't nag them. Don't nag them with the gospel. Plead with the one who truly can bring about that change, the Holy Spirit. He transforms. He transforms the most unlikely of people, as we see in the story. He died for us, and now he calls us to die to ourselves and live for him. Or as Donald Gray Barnhouse says, here was the eloquence of true love. Love so burningly manifest, so willing to take full responsibility before God, love which thought only of Jacob and Benjamin, melted the heart of Joseph. Such love moved Moses to ask God to blot his name out of the book of life for the sake of Israel. Such love prompted Paul to wish himself accursed for his brethren if only they could be saved. Judah was transformed by this divine love. It's true. This is one of the most powerful appeals for one person on the sake of another in all of the Scriptures. Moses does something similar in Exodus 32. Paul pleads in Romans 9, Look, I'll be cut off completely if, O oh Lord, please just come and save my brethren from Israel. Jesus, of course, did much more than just offer to be a substitute. He actually was. 
Jesus didn't just plead for us, though he did. He went to the cross and died for us as a substitute. He was the ram caught in the thicket that we talked about in chapter 22. uh, Isaac, you're the one who deserves the death. You're out. The substitute's in. This is what Christ has done for us. And showing us another example of that in the person of Judah. Lastly, we see a powerful reconciliation. Now, let me pause quickly to say one thing about this text. There is one area I think this text can lead to misunderstanding, and it's this. I don't think that Joseph is being a model for us here about how we ought to treat our spouse or our friends. We ought to set up these sort of secret tests to see how they're supposed to handle it. And if they don't, we can be suspicious of them from that point forward. That's not the takeaway. The takeaway is repentance leads to reconciliation. Not let me set all these sneaky tests to see the true uh, feelings of the people that I know. Not, Not the takeaway. It's important for the history of the story of Joseph. And the importance is this. There is no reconciliation without repentance. And Joseph is is being used directly by God to transform the brothers. Okay, that's the difference here. Joseph sets out this test because he wants to see their heart. How do they feel about Benjamin? And is it the same way they had felt about me? And And he finds out, of course, no, it is not. It's very different. Once Joseph hears this wonderful uh, intercession from Judah, that's all he needed. (laughs) He orders everybody out of the room, and he exclaims to his brothers now, just the 12 of them in the room, I am Joseph! I'm Joseph! I say this from time to time in sermons. This is another example of a story I would like to go back and watch myself. Wouldn't you like to see the faces of the brothers when he says this? Moses records the account, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Well, of course they were. It was sort of a big-time understatement. Dismayed, yeah, they were dismayed. (laughs) This this brother they hadn't seen for 22 years, who they sure they thought had died, he's now standing in front of them as second in command over all of Egypt. I am Joseph. They're in complete shock, and maybe they needed some further convincing. He doesn't look like they would expect him to look. He has not been speaking in their language. I think the implication is when he says, I am Joseph, he's speaking this in Hebrew. Notice what Joseph says next. He does not relieve them of their responsibility. Whom you sold into Egypt. He doesn't let them off the hook for what they did, but he does forgive them. And the reason he's able to forgive them is he knows that everything that has happened is because of the providential and sovereign hand of God. Come near to me, please, he says. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here but God. That is a tremendous statement. It is not you who sent me here. Well, actually, yeah, it was. But Joseph knows the true reality. It was only, you were only functioning as God allowed you to. God sent me here. God has done all of this, and God has now brought us back together again. You may have sold me, but it was God that did it. 
It was not you but God. And this theological lesson that Joseph is giving here is meant to be a tremendous comfort to them. Guys, I'm not angry with you. I forgive you. And don't you see how God has orchestrated all of this? If I hadn't have been here, could you have come here and gotten food? Could I have preserved our family? Don't you see the blessing that this has been? I'm going to highlight this again in chapter 50 when we come to the, you know, the, the, the culmination of this reconciliation. When Jacob, their father, dies, and all the brothers assume, well, now Joseph's going to take it out on us. He's been waiting until dad was dead, and now he's going to all the anger that he's been holding up for so long is going to come pouring out. And Joseph says, no, I'm not. You're forgiven. What you intended for evil, God intended for good to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph realized something that's, that's some incredible spiritual maturity. That so much has happened in my life has not been about me, but it's been about others. God has done great and mighty things, yes, through me, but mainly their benefit has been for the sake of other people. What an amazing statement of faith he gives. Joseph is bringing about reconciliation with his brothers. They admit that they're wrong and they confess it. Joseph forgives them. Joseph forgives them. He doesn't turn the screws on them. He doesn't say, well, let's see. Let's see how sorry you are for this. No, he knows they're sorrowful. There's no need for any more. I love you, brothers. Come here. Let me hug you. Let's, let's be together. We got a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> he wants to reconcile. He greets and, and sort of is particularly uh, intimate there with Benjamin. They weep together. He's so glad to see him. Word of this reconciliation spreads throughout Egypt. It, it pleases Pharaoh greatly. Bring all, we're, I'm going to send the wagons. I'm going to send the caravan. Bring your whole family back. They can settle in Goshen, which indeed they do. And of course, we who know the great story of Scripture, this has been the plan all along. To get God's people to Egypt... And then they're going to go into slavery, and then God is going to deliver them in this massive exodus event. The brothers go back and tell their father Jacob what has happened. Who got that privilege? Dad, we got something to tell you. Uh, you know, 22 years ago when we told you that a wild animal killed, well, we were lying. In fact, we've been lying for 22 years. In fact, we've lied to you every day since then about what happened to Joseph. He's actually alive. <laughs> Jacob is reticent, as you can imagine, to believe them, but it says in time the truth of the story revived his spirit. And again, God sent me. God has done this. Don't you see what God has done? It's over and over and over again. Do you believe this in your own life? God has done these things. God sent me here. God allowed this. You can't always see it at the time, but as you look back, you can see how he orchestrated these things. And that which you used to say was tragic, awful, and painful, though it still may feel that way, you can see how God has used it for glorious purposes. He is in the business of doing such things. How it has changed this family. How Joseph has deepened his faith. How the brothers have now been changed. And again and again and again. And this wonderful forgiveness that has been given. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. Uh, 
It's on my top five list. I don't have an order to it, but I have a five favorite movies. I'm not endorsing the movie. It's, the language is awful. Uh, if you've never seen the movie, uh, the first 20 minutes of the movie, you better buckle up because uh, it's very, very intense. But the storyline of the movie is this. There are four brothers, the Ryan brothers, and the three oldest die in World War II. And so a group of highly specialized army rangers are tasked with finding the youngest brother, Private Ryan. And that's what the movie's about. We've got to save Private Ryan. And so finally, near the end of the movie, there's this uh, allied forces are trying to hold this bridge, and they're not doing such a good job. And Captain Miller, Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, is shot, and, and he is basically lying there on the bridge dying. And finally, he sees Private Ryan, the one that the whole movie has been, the whole time this group has been searching for him. And his dying words to Private Ryan are these, earn this, earn it. And he stands there on the bridge listening to this captain say this to him, and just moments later, it fast forwards about 60 years, and this same Private Ryan is standing in front of the gravesite of the deceased Captain John Miller. And he's standing there looking, and he says the following words, Every day I think about what you said to me on that, that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all of you have done for me. It's an incredibly emotional scene. Because now the older Private Ryan turns to his wife, his kids and grandkids who are with him, and he sort of falls down to his knees and his wife comes and, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've earned it. Tell me I've been a good man. And it's heartbreaking because what you can tell in the face of this 70-year-old man is he has been tormented by that his whole life. Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I earned this wonderful care that these men showed unto me? And I'm afraid we see such a movie and we assume that the Christian life is the same way. As if Jesus Christ looks down on us and says, earn this. you got to earn it. That's not what he says. And even if he had said that, how could we ever be sure that we had? There's no metric. But that's not what he asks. He says, receive this because my son earned it. Receive this grace. Receive this forgiveness because Christ has earned it on your behalf. Yes, Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. That's true. But you're not repaying a debt. He died for you so that you would die to yourself and live for him in freedom. He has paid it all. He's not asking you to earn this. He earned it through Christ. And so now the very forgiveness that you have been given in Christ, he now says extend that to others. Reconcile unto others. What's Mr. Do you see the wonderful grace you have in Christ? (laughs) He paid it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder of your grace this morning. Lord, you did not ask us to earn anything. We could not. Our sin is too great, but your mercy and grace are greater. And we thank you for your love unto us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction?
remain standing as we sing the doxology together. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.